Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line, from TSPN, that's the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, also known as the Ant Hill. Today is episode 726, and we have just a kick-ass episode today, because one of our favorite guests of all time, Stephen Harris, guru of all things home energy production, is back. This is a guy that worked at Chrysler, developed hydrogen fuel systems, and knows just about anything and everything you could think about how to generate your own power and take control of your own energy needs, even do cool things like make enough of it to sell back to the power company. We'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, the people that ripped off the Boy Scouts for their domain name, Emergency Essentials. Why do I say that? Because their website is BePrepared.com. Whoever was running that show got that domain early, I promise you. And it's a great domain for them, even though it sounds like the Boy Scout motto, because that's what Emergency Essentials does. They help you to be prepared for whatever emergencies may come your way. Whether they're man-made, natural, short-term, or long-term, you'll find what you need to take care of your uh, emergency planning at Emergency Essentials. They really specialize in long-term storage food. They have tremendous options for that. They also have calculators that will help you calculate, well, if I have this much food, how long will this last our family in a time where we need it? They have a tremendous amount of information and resources as well on their website to help you get started in the right direction with food storage and other emergency planning. So check out Emergency Essentials. Again, they're at BePrepared.com. Next up today, Western Botanicals, and you'll find their website at, shockingly enough, WesternBotanicals.com. Dr. Kyle Christensen has put together an amazing company, really. Uh, the quality and the variety of the herbal supplements and the herbal raw herbs that they have is just amazing. Everything you get there is either going to be organically grown or wild crafted. And if you need, you know, you need help figuring out what do I need, uh, pick up the phone, call them. They're going to help you out. You know, you're going to get a real life person on the phone. To, Hello, this is Western Botanicals. How may I help you? And when you ask a question, they're not going to go, uh, hi, this is Peggy, like that commercial, right? These people are in, our, you know, Arizona. They're right there. In the in the in the shop, they can yell down the hall to Kyle if they need his advice, uh, or to one of the other folks at the clinic, and they can help you out and help you figure out what you need. And if you're saying like, I want to make my own stuff and I want to use your herbs to do it, they'll help you with that too. Great company. Whenever I need something herbal that's not growing in my backyard, I go to Western Botanicals to get it. Remember. Additionally, they support the member support brigade. If you are an MSB member and you want to do business with Western Botanicals, go in your back office of the MSB, get a code, call them up on the phone, give them that code, they will give you a free preferred membership. If you bought that today, it would cost you 50 bucks, which means by itself it paid for your first year of MSB in full, and you get 25% off everything they sell after that. How cool is that? So check out Western Botanicals today. Uh, next, remember to check out the gear shop. We have some cool stuff there. I know we got the Emberlit stoves coming back into stock. 
Everybody seemed to love those. Check out the little things, too, that you can add to your order. Uh, just cool stuff that maybe you can even give away to spread the message. You know, we have these dog tag bottle top openers. They're like three bucks or something like that. You know, pick up a, a half a dozen of them. Hand them out to your friends at the gun club or the rod and gun club or, or whatever. Uh, there's little cool things there you can use to spread the message, like the geocache coins. They're kind of cool, too. Um, so check the gear shop out. Remember, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. You can find links for all of that at the survivalpodcast.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you get great discounts. You know, like the one I already told you about, the Western Botanicals, where there's 28 other companies that will give you discounts. That means your membership will pay for itself. I give you one benefit that will do that. And you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. So if after listening to the show for an hour a day, you feel the show's worth two dimes every day, consider joining the MSB, and uh, you'll be supporting the show, but you'll also get a return of investment. And with that, as I said, uh, we are fortunate to have one of our all-time favorite guests uh, coming back to the show Stephen Harris, again, guru of all things alternative energy. Um, you guys just absolutely seem to have fallen in love with Stephen when I brought him on the show. I think it's always cool when we can bring a guest on that brings new things to the table, things that maybe we hadn't thought about before. And we brought somebody that got so many new things going on that it just generated like this massive wave of questions in the audience. And I want you to know, if you don't hear your question today, it's because like we're going to go like an hour and a half today, I think, maybe longer. And that's only half of what came in. So I'm going to try to get Stephen to come back and do another Q&A show. But with that, I just want to say uh, we are, again, fortunate to have Stephen on the, on the air with us today. Hey, Stephen, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Jack, I am so thrilled to be back. i got to say, I have been on a lot of radio interviews and stuff, and no one has ever given me the response like your listeners have. I mean, it's a community you have here that is just beyond description. And, I mean, they asked me questions. They bought things. They wrote in questions to you. They wrote me questions. I've just never, ever had anyone. Usually, if you can hear crickets chirping after I do a radio interview with real radio. But, I mean, the Survival Podcast is just beyond outstanding, and the listeners are just fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so grateful for them. Uh, they've made the show what it is. I when I started the show out, it was just me, and now it, it's 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 really a lot more than me. Uh, in fact, I would say that uh, uh, everything that the show represents is because of the community. So I'm glad you felt that uh, that welcome from them, and I know that they're they're really excited about having you back on. Um, so if we could, I'd like to get into some of the questions these folks have for you today. Yeah, we got a lot of them. Let's start moving through them so we can give these people some good, great hands-on stuff. Sure. Uh, first question came in. It said, Jack, I was wondering if Steve could talk about wood gasification applications such as carbureted versus fuel injected and how to control the proper mixture to prevent tar production gumming up the engine. Well, first of all, it's completely irrelevant whether you have a fuel injection engine or a carbureted engine. The fuel is coming in with the air through the throttle body intake from the gasifier and going with the air into the cylinder, which is being compressed and then ignited by the spark plug. So your fuel injectors are just basically plain turned off, and your fuel pump for your carburetor is just plain turned off, and you are just running straight off of the wood gas. Um, since the majority of the gas coming in is carbon, carbon monoxide-based, and there is also hydrogen in there coming in, it's basically all CO and H2, you don't even need to change the timing of the engine like you would for pure hydrogen because it's carbon monoxide. 
uh, likes to ignite at about the same uh, spark timing as gasoline does. So it's literally make your generator, your gas generator, and hook it up to the vehicle and let the vehicle suck it in. Now, there you have to valve it correctly, okay? you got to have a valve for air coming in. you got to have a valve restricting the amount of gas coming in. And then you have to have a third valve. And these valves are fully documented in the book, Hydrogen Gas Generator for Vehicles and Engines, Volume 3 and 4. Volume 3 and 4 is important. Uh, it covers the air-fuel mixing with pipes and valves off the show from Home Depot, full pictures and diagrams, and I'll have a link to that book at solar1234.com. But to reiterate, fuel ejection or carbureted, doesn't matter. It'll run off of wood gas. Very, very cool. I think it's something that people are going to need to rely on your additional resources for. That's not something you can explain to somebody. You know, put this nut, this bolt, and this pipe together on an audio. But uh, basically, the answer is it doesn't matter. You can do it with either vehicle. So that's cool. Next person is asking about large production gasoline generators, 100 kilowatts or more uh, to use on a large scale. I guess maybe they want to uh, sell electricity to the power company or something like that. This is something that you can do, Okay. You can go buy a 100-kilowatt generator, and you can hook it up to the power grid. you got to do the phase matching. Uh, and you can generate your own power from wood, and it can be done, and there are people doing it. And you get all sorts of different credits for doing it. Some places have to buy, quote-unquote, renewable energy, and you'll actually get 8, 10, 15 cents a kilowatt hour instead of what's called the deferred rate of 1.8 to 3.2 cents a kilowatt hour which makes it financially viable, you can do it. 100-kilowatt generators, they come on a small trailer, like a trailer with two or three axles on it, maybe 15, 16 feet long, and you can pull them behind a pickup truck. That's an idea to give you how big a 100-kilowatt generator is. You're going to need to have a stationary wood gas generator for this, which is going to be almost equal in size or bigger than the, than the generator itself. And the important thing with um, doing it like this is you need to have really good fuel feeding mechanism because it's not the gasifier that's hard to do. Gasification is pretty straightforward. It's the feeding of the material into the gasifier that is the labor-intensive time-producing part. And our book, Hydrogen Gas Generator for Vehicles Engines, Volume Six. Volume 6 is all about big stationary gasification, especially material feeding mechanisms and gas cleanup. Um, and so it makes it a whole lot easier. And again, we'll put a link to this at solar1234.com. And now is the time to buy a generator like this. There is a recession on. Now is the time to buy. These things are going at world record low prices right now. And you can pick one up for ten cents, fifteen cents, twenty cents on the dollar. So it, it, it is very viable. That's a that's a pretty good sized system too. I remember when I was in Honduras, we had uh, two large generators. I don't remember their size. They were bigger than hundred kilowatts though. That ran the whole camp, uh, and they they looked like. Uh, Man, I'll tell you what, they, when, when, they, uh, when they brought one up the first time, you could hear it uh, clear across things. Uh, 
I don't, I really like, I wish I could remember what, what the wattage of those things were, but they were absolutely massive. But 100 kilowatts is something like you say you can tow around with a pickup truck if you, if you wanted to. Um, I, I, I guess the one thing we need to mention that, like you were mentioned about the deferred rate. Yeah. And, 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 you know, like the, the, the going rate, I guess you would say. There's, are there some states where you can't even do it either way? Like, or does all states at least have to buy it at the deferred rate right now? Um, well, generally they'll buy it from you from the deferred rate, and that definition is the price that they would be paying for electricity when they build their next power plant, which would be a coal or a nuke, which is like 1.8 to 3.2 cents per kilowatt hour. Right now, you're paying between 8.5 and 10 cents a kilowatt hour, unless you're in the Socialist Republic of California who has artificially taxed their electricity to 20 to 25 cents a kilowatt hour. Um, it varies from county to county, state to state, and location to location. Uh, there's places that won't buy back your power. There's places that will only net meter your power, where they'll take your power, but they'll only give you credit for as much as you actually use in your house or your business. And if you produce more, they keep it. Uh, it, it just varies all over the place. There is no standard, really, at the moment. Uh, I'm going to throw an extra question here then. Would a person benefit at all then from if they could get a lot of scrap wood cheap from building a gasifier, getting a, you know, a typical generator, more like somebody would use as a backup generator, not a big standby one, but you know, it's 7,500K or something like that. Um, hooking that up and basically setting it up to net meter so that it would run maybe a few hours a day. Uh, and, and whatever surplus is provided would net meter back? Or is that just too much trouble for the return? Uh, if that is your area of expertise, if you can fabricate or, or you want to buy the gasifier and you want to hook it up to the generator and you want to do the matching to the grid and you have someone that can help you do this, like a professional electrician, it would be worth the effort, especially if you had, one, the time, and, two, you had a source of free material. It is entirely possible to do. You're going to have to jump through a few hoops, and but yes, you can do it. It would be possible. It would work. It would be beneficial, not if you're slammed with having four kids and working 50 hours a week. It wouldn't be worth it to you. Um, I guess unless you could tell them kids, uh, an hour a day, you're out there feeding the gasifier. <laughs> yeah, you want to feed your gasifier maybe once or twice a day, ideally. There are some... There are some systems out there where you can, uh, the ones I was working on when I was in Texas, we would actually load it with a front-end loader and be a big grain auger and it would feed the gas fire and it would run for days. But that was an experimental unit we were working on. That's the real way to do it. Very, very cool. So here, next person sticking on the wood gasification thing. Please ask how we can best start out with wood gasification. I've never seen it before, and I'd like to start something small before I invest too much. Also, would my neighbors object to a huge boiler belching fire in my backyard? <laughs> um, one, the hydrogen, hydrogen gas generator book, volume 3 4, is the best one to start with. It's step by step, hands on instructions. Uh, there are no boilers in gasification of wood, there are no steam engines, there is no belching fire from a boiler. You're running an internal combustion engine directly from the quote-unquote wood smoke. And if you live your life around what your neighbors think, you'll do nothing except mow your lawn. 
You know, it makes me think of one kink in the works here. Uh, if you're going to rely on this, that you need to plan for in your seasonality. Uh, right now, my county and half of Arkansas, in spite of the recent rains, is still under a burn ban. So that's one thing I guess people should plan for there. This is not burning. Wood gasification is not burning at all. I mean, it is completely enclosed. It is contained. It is sealed. It is, you're not burning the wood. You are doing a gasification of it, a partial oxidation of it. It does not qualify as burning in any shape or form. It would like be like saying you couldn't run your wood furnace to heat your house. Because there was because the flame is contained. Contained completely. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, you might you don't really have a lot of smoke either because the smoke is being consumed by the generator. So you're not even going to have a nosy neighbor report you then. You have smoke on startup. You generally use an, an air blower to suck the air through or to push the air through to start the thing up and heat it up for about five minutes. And okay. At that time, it can smoke, but. Okay. Maybe no, no smoker than having a, a fire in your backyard, a pit fire okay. or something. All right. Um, next one here it says I asked about I asked about building a small gas fire on a lawnmower quad trailer, but forgot the heart of the question. I know there are popular plans for an easy to build FEMA gasifier. I understand it makes tar. Other units are more complicated to build, but filter out the tar. I can live making. I can live with making tar since I plan to run salvage lawnmower engine and spin spin an alternator. But I'd like to weigh the options between the two. How long would it take tar to damage the motor? If it takes a week, I might want to filter it out. If it takes years, I wouldn't care since my free lawnmower engine might not last that long anyway. Thanks, Mike. Um, it all, Mike. It all has to. to it all depends on how good your filtering is. Uh, the FEMA gasifier, which is an HGG 3 and 4, has pretty good filtering in it. Uh, adding a water-based filter would improve the gas quality. There are some water filters in HGG uh, book number 6. Uh, tar buildup could become a problem in weeks to a few months to a few years, depending on how often you're running it, depending on what your feed material is. And it depends if you're changing out your filter material. You Many times you have three filters. You have a rough filter, a finer filter, uh, a water filter, and then you might have a fourth filter. And the first filter might be running the gas through a bunch of leaves, and the tar will condense on the leaves, and then the gas will go through a bunch of dry grass or straw as the second filter. Then it might be pushed through a water bubbler and, and bubble into the water, and then you might have the gas go through something like an automotive engine air cleaner filter as a fourth filter. When you start building up stuff on your first and second filters, which are the leaves and the grass, you take that stuff out of your filter, which is usually a barrel, and you put it into the gasifier as fuel. And you put more leaves or more grass into the two filters as new filter material, and you keep on running. So you're going to get tar buildup depending based upon how good you're filtering, how often you change your filtering material, what your material is that you're running. Uh, the hotter and the quicker you can run, the better. And uh, it could become an issue in weeks or months, uh, but it's more like it'll become an issue in months to a year. And to take care of that, what you do is you take the heads off the engine and you take... Um, a cleaner, and you basically clean out the tire with 
a light hydrocarbon. It could be gasoline. It could be alcohol. It could be acetone. All those things will clean out the uh, top of the motor just fine. And it's not that big a deal to do, especially with something like you're talking about a little system here run by a lawnmower engine. It's, it's, uh, if you know anything about lawnmower engines, it's, it's a pretty easy job to do, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I did tire up one of my Honda generators, my a fancy EU2000i, and it was a pain. I had to spend $500 having someone take it apart because the whole thing had to come apart. But it's a real detailed engine. Uh, using a simpler Honda engine or a simpler lawnmower engine, the top part just comes right off. There's the valve, there's the cylinder, there's the piston, and it just takes steel wool and acetone and clean it out and continue on. Very, very cool. So sometimes the simpler motor is better depending on the application and how well you can set the system up to begin with. You can play that again. Keep it simple. Cool, cool. Um, one more question on wood gasification, I think, before starting to go some different questions here. Uh, the guy wants to know, what are the rough guidelines on how many pounds of wood waste, chips, dust, etc., does it take to create energy equivalency of a gallon of gasoline? How many trees do i got to chop down to make a gallon of gas? This is a fabulous question. It really puts it into perspective. How many pounds of wood or waste material does it take to make the, equi- the equi- equivalent as if you were running off a gallon of gasoline? The answer to that is about 20 to 30 pounds of dry weight of wood or the equivalent material will make the generator produce the same amount of electricity as if it was a gallon of gasoline. Now, there's another caveat to it. If you had this on your car and you were driving your car up with gas, the historical proven numbers are it takes between one and one and a half pounds of wood per mile you drive. Now, how's that for economics? That's pretty good. I mean, if you pick up a good-sized chunk of hardwood log, it's it's fairly heavy. Oh, yeah. Wood is pretty dense. Wood is pretty dense. And uh, sawdust is real light and fluffy. Wood chips are more dense. Pieces of wood cut into cubes the size of... Um, like one inch by one inch, are even more dense. And that's what you need to run in a gas fire. you got to run broken up material. you either got to cube the wood, you got to shred the wood, you got to chip the wood. you got to have something. You just can't do it with whole logs. And pieces. Of course. Of course. Um, next question, then. Um, how can you use a rocket stove to heat a room in the house? You will never use a, quote, real rocket stove to heat a room in your house because you'll end up dead. It's, a, it's an open flame. It's producing carbon monoxide. However, there is something called a rocket heater, and sometimes this word stove is put into it, but it's a rocket stove design that is contained with a bunch of heat exchange, like a 55-gallon barrel, and then the exhaust goes underneath a bed, a bed of concrete and heats up the thermal mass, and then it exhausts outside. There is a great book on the subject, and there's a great video on the subject on YouTube. Jack will put it in his show notes. I'll put it on solar1234.com for you to go take a look at. It's on YouTube. It doesn't cost nothing. It's a fabulous book, but... Don't run any open flame combustion from wood or anything like that inside your house ever. 
Agreed, agreed. Um, and one thing on the rocket mass heater, folks, is there's a lot of applications for that. I'll save my thoughts on that for later because we've got a question where Steve doesn't mention it and I'm going to. Um, but it's one of the really great technologies for you to learn about because if you do it right uh, and you get the exhaust right, it, it, it's a very, very clean exhaust, not something you want to breathe like Steve's saying. You end up dead if you do that. But uh, it, it's basically CO2 and, and, and water that comes out the end, um, and there are tremendous applications for it. It's very simple technology, and uh, it's something anybody can do with, with uh, parts from Home Depot or Lowe's. Uh, let's, let's run on here then. Um, The next question is, I would like to know if it would be worth the effort to produce alcohol as a fuel for a vehicle uh, or generator. Is the conversion cost worth the savings? What should I use, such as corn, sugar cane, what have you? Oh, boy. What a question. I could do an entire show. I could do two entire shows on nothing but the subject of making alcohol, fuel alcohol for your car. There are so many ways of doing it. It's really pretty straightforward. It's absolutely legal to make fuel alcohol. In fact, the permit is free from the federal government, and it's either cheap or easy to get it from the state or not required. But to answer the question, what do you use, is you want to use waste material. Now, you can use two things. You can use anything starch. You can use three, four-day-old donuts from the bakery. They can give those to you. There's sugar and starch in those. You convert the starch over the sugar. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, you can go, go get farm bread from the discount bread store or directly from the bakery. Farm bread is bread that's way out of expiration that they sell to farms for feeding the pigs. You could use wheat or you could use corn that is no good for humans. Um, that's being rejected, even rejected for animal feed. You could use that. Maybe you got a mold or a fungus in it. That would work good. Uh, pastry sweepings from a bakery, flour, and uh, bad uh, dough works great. That's a starch. Uh, one of the better sur- sources would be waste cola syrup from your local bottling company. That's just straight sugar. If you can get that, and they generally have it by the drum and by the tanker load, you can ferment that directly with yeast, and that makes an, uh, a fuel that makes an, uh, a solution, a beer, quote unquote, that you then distill to make your alcohol. If you're running with the free starch, the free bakery, the material, the free corn, the free donuts, you have to convert the starch over to a sugar, and you use two enzymes, an alpha amylase and a, and a glucose amylase, and you, and you heat up the solution with water, you put in one enzyme, let it work for 30 minutes to an hour, then you put it, heat it up a little more, and you put in the second enzyme, and then you cool the whole thing down, and it's converted all your starches over to sugars, just like you do in your mouth and in your stomach. And then you ferment those sugars with Yeast. You can use champagne yeast if you want to get an 18% yield. You can use special turbo yeast to get a 24% alcohol yield. Or you can use straight Red Star yeast right off the grocery store to get about 11% yield of alcohol. And then you run that through a still, which is a whole other subject. And depending on how the still is, Made, you can get 190 proof alcohol directly off of the still that will run in your vehicle directly. You can run up to about 50% alcohol in any 
car today, any gasoline car today, with no modifications to the vehicle at all. You can actually run E85 in your standard gasoline car right now between 20, 30, 40, or 50 percent. You start off at 20 percent, runs fine, go to 30 percent, runs fine, go to 40 percent, runs fine. If you notice any hesitation, any um, lack of power, doesn't feel like it's igniting properly, then you back off from 50% to 40%, and you only go with 40%. But gasoline and alcohol makes it great. You can so if you're making your own, you shouldn't be dumping 190 proof straight into the tank. You should be cutting it with gas. You should be cutting it with gas. If you want you to do a 100% conversion and run on complete 190 proof, you can get some kits that are on the Internet, and basically what they do is they hold the injectors open for a little bit longer because Alcohol fuel is not as dense as gasoline, so more of it has to spray into the cylinder. And so the little box is computer-controlled that holds the, holds the fuel injector open for a little bit longer. And uh, that will give you 100% conversion to run up a fuel alcohol. Uh, sometimes, if your still isn't quite perfect, you might have to distill it two or three times to get 190 proof alcohol for fuel uh, but it's not hard to make a still. And I have a complete set of books on this subject. Uh, it's actually at imakemygas.com, but I'll put up detailed links to it on solar1234.com. The Bible, the book is so thick you can stuff a bullet. The Bible on making alcohol is called Alcohol Can Be a Gas by David Bloom. And I have it on my website. And I have it on imakemygas.com. I also have something called the Free Fuel Compendium, Volume 1 Volume 2. Volume 1 shows you how to distill alcohol with two plastic pails and a fish heater from Walmart. How's that for simple? That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. And folks, some of you guys that are out there that are home brewers that make your own beer, uh, the, the beginning we were talking about starch conversion versus uh, just using something like waste cola syrup, uh, uh, full mash brewing versus malt extract brewing. That's is a simple way to, to, to nail, nail that down for people familiar with that. Also, if you guys want to get a hold of a yeast that will ferment up into this like 22, 24% range, um, Midwest Home Brew sells a distiller's yeast uh, that'll do that for you, and, and it's a very, very fast-acting yeast. Uh, it can be used for other things like uh, if you're making really strong Belgian ales, pushing the limits of what fermentation can do. Uh, I do want to ask you about, I know it's not illegal at all to do distillation for fuel usage, um, and you said you can get a permit uh, at no cost to do that with. Right. Uh, but do you have to do something to the alcohol after it's been produced uh, so that it would not be consumable, or is it just basically you're not going to be uh, drinking and it's going in your vehicle? Is there some type of additive that has to be added after it's distilled or anything like that from a government standpoint? Yes, you have to add 2% gasoline. Okay. Which would make so as soon as it comes out, if you're storing it, you have to have at least 2% gas yeah, with it. Yeah, and that would make yeah. it very poisonous to drink. <laughs> it wouldn't taste very good either. No, it would be very poisonous <laughs> to drink alcohol with 2% gasoline. Okay, great. Um also, it's making me think, Steve. I, my 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 uh, grandfather had as a, and it's still there. He's long gone. Uh, God rest his soul. But uh, had a, a copper boiler and a, a still condenser and all that's in our attic uh, back home. That was for a different purpose, uh, sort of, uh, from you know the 30s and the, or actually the 20s. 
Uh, makes me want to uh, see if my dad will send it down to me and see if I can't cook, cook up some fuel with it. Yeah, um, no, you can. You might have to distill it four to six times to get 190 proof out of a pot still. That's a pot still. Yeah. And, hey, this is a worldwide presentation. People in New Zealand can be listening to this, and people in New Zealand can legally distill alcohol for drinking purposes. That's true. That's true. It's not hard. Everybody used to do it. We had a little thing called the Whiskey Rebellion in response to a tax on it. Uh, it was the first challenge that our new president Washington had. Uh, so it's not it's not an old, a new thing. It's just a matter of uh, realizing the wisdom of people that came before us. And making uh, fuel alcohol and drinking alcohol is basically the same, except to make it better for drinking, you throw away what's called the heads and the tails, and you run it through a carbon filter about ten times. Or you can stop at the beer level. Or you can stop <laughs> at the beer level, yep. Or the wine level. It's perfectly legal in this country to make beer for your own personal consumption and wine for your own personal consumption. And we can't leave out the most wonderful invention of alcohol mankind has ever come up with, mead. Yeah, mead. Mead is beer from uh, honey. It's uh, it's a beautiful thing is what it is. Hey, Steve, I'm about to make your day. I'm going to ask you a question I know is like the biggest softball set up in the world, and you'll probably go off on a 15-minute uh, response, and you just, just run with it. Uh, here's the question. The podcast with Steve was an all-time survival podcast great. It left me with a million ideas and possibilities to consider. My question is, what are the best things a homeowner can do to lower the utility bills? What's the most bang for your buck reducing AC in the summer and using solar thermal or some other technology for heat in the winter? I'm interested in low-hanging fruit here, just some simple things that get me started lowering that electric bill. Of course, what books contain the in-depth answers to these questions? Thanks for the great information, and the floor is yours. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. People, I, I keep on beating people over the head with this all the time. They will go off and spend thousands, thousands of dollars on junk to put onto their car, thinking they're going to save a few miles per gallon or a few dollars, and it doesn't work, it won't work. And But they won't go after the low-hanging fruit, which is to reduce your cooling load in your house and reduce your heating load. Take the, you could, I can save you 100 to $200 a month right now on your AC or on your heating bill if you're in the south or in the north. And that's two or $300 extra right in your pocket that you can use to buy gasoline. So, I mean... Solar heat and solar cooling for your house actually makes your gasoline cheaper because you got more money, if that makes sense. And I think it makes perfect sense. Where to start? Um, okay, summer cooling. Since we're in the summer, let's start with this. I have a book called How to Really Save Money and Energy in Cooling Your House. It'll be a link on solar1234.com. It is the most beautiful book with the best diagrams. You look at the diagrams and you go, I get it. I understand how my house gets hot all now, and now I understand how to cool it. And I want to tell you the main concept that's in the book, free right here in Jack Spiro. You water your roof. You literally put a sprinkler of some type onto your roof, and you spray the water onto the roof, and it removes the heat. It does a little a bit of this by latent effect cooling, a little bit of, from the evaporation of the water, and does a fair amount of it by just heating the water and the water running down your 
your roof and down into your eaves, your eaves troughs, and then you can run them, you can run the hot water into your pool and heat, you can heat your swimming pool with the water coming off your roof. Now, I have a guy that does this in Florida. Now, this is really not a swamp cooler, okay? And people go, oh, it's a swamp cooler. It won't work in Florida. Yes, it works in Florida. It works in Texas. It works in Montana. It works great. And the best practice is this is one of my great customers who's done this better than anyone else is he got a hydroponics controller, and it turns on the water on his roof for five seconds out of every 90 seconds. He has lowered his AC bill by $200 a month in Florida. His house stays perpetually cool because the way your house gets hot is the sun hits the roof, the roof gets heated up, it heats up the attic, it heats up the floor of the roof, which is the top of the ceiling of your room, which goes into... So you just stop the heat from getting into the house in the first place. And one of the things you'll realize real quickly, if you don't want to water your roof and stuff... If you get a spray foam company to come in and to spray foam on the underside of your roof, on the underside of the roof, not the floor of the attic, on the ceiling of the attic, it will keep the heat out of your house and you will save tremendous amounts of money both on summer cooling and winter heating. And no, this is not going to kill your shingles. No, it's not going to expand them. No, it's not going to hurt them. It is actually going to expand then the life of your shingles because either one, they'll be cooler because of the water flowing over them, or two, they'll be at a more constant temperature because of the insulation behind them and not expanding and contracting. And I, Steve, I've always noticed that when shingles go bad, you pick them up, they're all crumbly and dried out. Yep. <laughs> so this exactly. is going to keep them from drying out due to the heat suppression. Um, or it'll keep them at a constant temperature because of the insulation behind them, the foam, and they won't be expanding and contracting, which is going to get them to, to break up. Now, that is summer cooling, okay? It's called how to cool, how to really save money and energy in cooling your house. Heating is even easier, and you can save money even quicker on this. There's two books for solar heating. One is Sunshine to Dollars, the book I told you about last time, the book that I wrote. It shows you how to put a solar heater in your window and for a room, and it's fully documented in the book. I show you the temperatures. I show you how I made it. Most importantly, I show you how to get free glass in almost every city in the entire country. You can get scrap loads of glass from certain businesses for nothing, and you can use these to make your solar heaters. That's what the most expensive thing in a solar heater is, is the glass. Get the glass for free. You got the cheapest free heat you can get. So you can start off with Sunshine the Dollars making a solar window heater. And then once you graduate from there, you get the complete handbook of solar air heating systems. And this book from me is really the complete book of solar air heating systems. It shows you how to make the ones that go on your roof. It shows you to make the ones that go on your wall, which are called trome walls. It shows you one that will go into your window like an air conditioner, only it slopes down to the ground. And it will put a fair amount of heat into a room in the wintertime, depending if it's east or west or south-facing south or north-facing if you're in the southern hemisphere. And you just, like, open the window a foot, you put this thing into the window, you slide the window down just like it was an AC unit, and you turn it on, you use some... Uh, Temperature thermostats from Granger 
which is an easy place to buy temperature controllers or the hardware store, and it'll turn on a little fan, and it'll just continually blow hot air into the room every time the sun shines. In the springtime, you open your window, take the thing out, put it in your garage, you put your air conditioner unit in, and away you go. I mean, this is, I, you can you can get your money back on this stuff in days. If you get the glass for free, we're just talking about some uh, 2x4s, plywood, and spray paint, and you have uh, and some muffin fans or some uh, duct blowers from Home Depot, and you have a solar air heater. And th- the one that goes into the window can easily be equivalent to having a little 1,000 kilowatt, not 1,000 kilowatt, 1 kilowatt um, electric heater in a room. So think of how much heat a little electric heater puts on you that you plug in the wall. I mean, a solar heater in Michigan can, let alone the south, in the wintertime can do about the same amount of heat as a little electric heater. And it, it just saves you money so quickly and so easily. Everyone wants to focus on the hard stuff. Go get the low-hanging fruit, cool your house easily in the summer, heat it easily in the winter, take that money you save, buy the kids books, put braces on their teeth, buy more gasoline. It'll, either way, it's more money in your pocket. You know, I completely agree, and I think people underestimate how much electricity they use to heat and cool. Uh, I'm sitting on the Nebraska uh, Public Power District because it's the easiest thing I could find while you were talking, and I guarantee you these numbers are a little bit different in Texas where the cooling is going to be more and the heating less. But uh, looking at what people use in their homes, space heating in Nebraska anyway, 48%, cooling 7%, water heating 14%. Uh, appliances, all the other appliances and lighting together, you, you average you use to 31%. So while I don't say like it's not a good idea to use LED or fluorescent light bulbs or what have you, depending on the application, that's the, that's the, like the, the smallest part of what you're using. The things you're talking about here for maximum impact are the things that people actually are doing the greatest draw for. And I guess what you can illustrate that real quick is I'm looking, you know, I was looking at generators recently. And if you start looking at how much of a generator you need, go find a generator calculator and leave heating and cooling off and see how much less generator you need. Oh, yeah. Um, let alone air conditioners. There's a reason why your central air conditioner is hooked up to the 240 volt mains of your house is because it draws such an extraordinary amount of electricity. And I'd say air conditioning in the south easily draws a lot more power than your hot water heater by a factor of four at least. And are there some other things people can do? I mean, like you can heat water. I mean, that's not real hard to build a solar hot water heater either, either is it? Well, the rule is you heat with air first and then you store in water. Okay. You always want to heat the air first and drop that air into the house. In fact, the cooler the air coming out of the solar heater, the more efficient it is. So... You want the air coming out of the solar heater being between 90 and 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and that'll be two to three times more efficient, giving you two to three times more heat than if the air coming out of solar a hot air heater was 140 to 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so you want more blower to make cooler air coming out, yet hotter than the ambient of the room. And solar hot air is about three to four times more efficient than heating up solar hot water. Solar hot water, you got to heat up to 140 to 180 degrees Fahrenheit if you're going to run it through a heat exchanger. And there's an, all, an efficiency calculation in there that basically the higher your temperature, the lower your efficiency. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. But I mean, I've got nine months of summer down here, basically, where I don't need hot air, but I do need hot water. Yeah. Okay. Then you, you want hot water. There's so many different ways of making solar hot water. In Sunshine of Dollars, I show you how to make a solar hot water heater out of a piece of sliding glass door glass, uh, two two by fours, uh, some black plastic, and an old wood door. You can put it out into the sunshine and make you can almost boil 15 gallons of water in the sunshine in a real short period of time. And then once you do that, you understand it. Yeah, okay, I can see how this works. Then you can go to a more advanced solar hot water heater that you put onto your roof of your house that would heat your hot water. And your payback will be directly proportional to how many females you have in your house that take 30-minute hot showers. <laughs> Very, very cool. So those, I mean, I, I think we could probably just have you keep going here. But I want to keep moving through the questions because there's so much low-hanging fruit out there. But those are great, great tips for people to get started. There's one, uh, let's there's go. one more piece of low-hanging fruit I forgot to mention. That I have a book okay, go ahead. A book called Movable Insulation. And uh, it shows you how to put up real simple insulation that you can put up and take down every day, like on your south-facing windows in the summertime. Um to keep the heat out of the house. It's got curtains that you can make yourself to keep the heat out or to keep the heat in. Uh, that's another low-hanging fruit book that I forgot to mention. But go on to the next question, Jack. Sure. Uh, great stuff, too. And we definitely use, like, thermal drapes because it just it's so simple and it works so, so well. Right. Um, next question, though, is on greenhouses. What would be the best type of heater to heat a greenhouse to at least 35 degrees Fahrenheit overnight when the outside air temperature might get down to 26 degrees for four to five hours? Oh, that's easy. You store heat uh, from sunshine in soda bottles or in uh, water drums. Uh, you can use a black metal drum that contains water, uh, and if you use soda bottles, make sure you paint them black as well, such that you heat up the greenhouse during the daytime, the bottles retain the, the water and the bottles retain the heat, and then it releases the heat when the sun goes down. You're going to want to have a fan blowing over your drums or your water bottles in order to, uh, one, heat them up quicker when the sun is shining, and two, to get the heat out of them when it, it's dark. Now, for a greenhouse, I'm, I'm not talking about like a drum or a dozen soda bottles. I'm talking about an entire wall of stacked soda bottles. I'm talking for a greenhouse, depending upon the size, one third or uh, one quarter of the floor space taken up with a 55 or 30 gallon drums. I'm talking about a lot of drums absorbing sunlight and getting heated up during the daytime to release that heat at night because it takes a fair amount of heat. Uh, the next the ex, next best solution, how would you heat a greenhouse without doing solar, would you get a wood furnace and you heat it with wood in some fashion or form through the night. I actually have two more ways you can do this that are pretty easy. When we go back to our old friend, um, the rocket mass heater. Yeah, sure. And, and sure. what we do is we take and we dig a trench uh, at some, and, and probably the inside of the north wall of the greenhouse where you're not going to get much solar gain. Uh, you can replace this with with uh, thermal gain from wood. And we lay our exhaust system uh, that that creates the thermal mass energy into that trench. And we build a raised bed garden on the floor of our greenhouse right there, and we place place our most heat sensitive crops into that bed. Uh, we can then fire that uh, rocket mass heater up in the evening, 
and uh, it'll go out eventually, but the thermal gain there will be enough to get you through all but your coldest nights. And then the super low-tech Bill Mollison method. Uh, we build ourselves a chicken house that's inside our greenhouse but keeps the chickens from getting at the stuff so they don't go eat all our stuff. And if we put enough chickens inside a greenhouse, it will virtually never get below uh, freezing in there unless it gets re- – I mean, if we're in the coldest cold environments in the United States, but for most people that are dealing with temperatures down in the teens and 20s, the chickens literally will keep your greenhouse from uh, losing its crops, and they will provide CO2, which will make your plants grow better. Yeah, so, there are literally tables that give you the amount of heat given off of every animal from mice to chickens to rabbits to cows to humans. It's in the uh, ASHRAE handbook, American Society of Heating and Refrigeration, something like that. And uh, it's in, I mean, there are whole articles about eating your house with rabbits or animals. And uh, that's a very true statement, uh, not to be overlooked. Put the chickens inside the greenhouse such that they can't eat the plants, and it will help keep it warm at night. You know, you're making me think now, and I'm even coming up with one more. Uh, take a corner of your greenhouse and dedicate it to where you're making your compost during the winter. Make a great big heap and pile of compost, uh, and you'll get a lot of uh, thermal gain out of that. We had a guy on, I think you'd love what this guy did, Steve. His name was Clayton Jacobs. Uh, he manufactured a little product called a soil cube for starting your plants with. But he did that in his greenhouse. He made a massive pile of compost, and he ran uh, water tubing through the center that it gets up to about 150, 160 degrees. Yep. He ran that tubing out into his growing beds outside of the greenhouse, uh, ran the tubing through them and back down into the greenhouse. And then the heat would just push it up, and it would just circulate, and it's just circulating back and forth uh, as the water heated and cooled. He put floating row covers over his crops, and he said, and this is California, this is not Idaho with seven below zero, uh, but these are, you know, nights in the 20s, and he'd come out in the morning, and his growing beds out, his, you know, unprotected other than a simple floating row cover, were literally steaming in the cold air. So there's, it, it's just being creative and putting these things together. Yeah, composting, uh, thermal degradation of material through bacteria does produce a significant amount of heat. It's at least 140 degrees Fahrenheit. As you said, it can get up to 160 degrees Fahrenheit. You can use what's called a thermal siphoning system where it will flow naturally because of the difference in temperature, no pumps needed, and that is an absolutely great fourth way to keep a greenhouse warm in the wintertime. Could you help me with that? Because Clayton like understood it, but wasn't really able to explain to me how he was able to get that water to move through there. Obviously, the system has to be somewhat closed. If you overpressurize it with the heat, you'd have an issue. So how do I get the water to move in the I guess either direction is fine, but how do I make sure that water moves and does what I want it to do? Warm water is less dense than cold water, so it will want to flow up, and the cold Uphill. water will want to flow down. So you have don't have them at the same level. You have one up and you have one down. So you have your you have your bed outside that's in the cold area above the compost pile. The water will get heated in the compost pile. It'll thermally siphon up, heat, heat the the uh, plant bed, and that colder water will then flow down into the compost pile naturally. It's called a thermal. So that's that simple. I just need to make sure that my compost is lower than and there's probably a limit to the lift there. Or oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You want it to have just a foot or less above the compost okay. pile. So I don't want to be trying to push that up a seventy percent grade over fifty yards. That's not gonna. That's not gonna fly. Nope. Not gonna fly. <laughs> All right, cool. Let's go on to the next one. Um, where can I buy a wood gas unit? 
there is really only one place. There are about three different people who sell wood gas units on the Internet. Uh, one of them is imported from China. Another one is a piece of stainless steel work of art, which is $20,000. The people you want to buy a, a unit from, it's called the Geck Gasifier. We'll put a link on solar1234.com as well as in the show notes on Jack's site. But that's G-E-K Gasifier, and it's from a place called allpowerlabs.com, run by Jim Mason. They have the world's best off-the-shelf gasifier made, period. It is computer-controlled. It controls the feeding of material. It controls the operation of the gasifier. It uh, makes a beautiful gas. that you, you, They have a complete setup on a pallet, ready to go with a 10, 15, or 20 kilowatt generator with a gasifier. You just literally put the material in it, turn it on, and let it run. And when they have their gasification workshops, and they're in Berkeley, California, they'll have a live video cam running for 72 hours on their power pallet just continually making power and running lights and, and welders and everything just as a load to demonstrate and prove that it can run continually. The thing will cost you between ten and $20,000, and if it's all done and ready to go. They are an open-source community, which means they have the plans for this on their website. You can download the plans for nothing. They will make a kit for you. They have a computer-controlled cutter which will cut out all the steel pieces. They'll send you all the steel pieces for you to make it from. They'll send it to you partially assembled. For more money, they'll send it to you completely assembled for even more money. And if you want, they'll ship you the whole thing with the generator included on a pallet directed to your location. They have these running around the world. Uh, if you want to buy something and just put in material and turn the switch and let it run, this is your best, closest answer that is out there, and I cannot say enough good things about the Get Gasifier or All Power Labs and Jim Mason and his workshops. Just fabulous people, fabulous stuff they've done for gasification. They really turned it into the state of the art, and now they're actually working on an advanced Fischer-Tropes process, which is not finished yet, which will turn that wood gas, which is really what's called syngas, it's mostly carbon monoxide and hydrogen, and they're working on a way to turn it over to a liquid fuel. This is entirely possible and reasonable because the Germans did it during World War II. They had some synthetic fuel plants all over Germany because they couldn't import enough oil because we bombed the hell out of the Palestine oil fields. Very, very cool. Um, and, I mean, that, that type of system you're talking about, there is a large system significantly enough to, to run it an average household, no problem off of if you wanted to do it. Uh, five households. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Um, uh, the other thing is you kind of beat up photovoltaic panels. So we have a lot of people, I, you know, I've got one question here, but really a lot of people asking and saying they feel like they need to rethink the entire concept of solar panels in the first place. Can you say a little bit more about photovoltaics? Solar photovoltaic panels, they will make you energy independent. They will give you enough energy for you to be off the grid. They will give you enough energy to go through a disaster, to live a year without power from the grid, to not even need the grid. However, there's a price you're paying for this independence. Solar photovoltaics are made 
from the vapor deposition of silicon, which makes the polysilicon. And this is done with high temperature electric heat. So there's a great deal of electricity that goes into the manufacture of solar panels. So they are expensive and they're energy intensive. Uh, incidentally, most solar panels are made with nuclear electricity over in Japan. But solar photovoltaic is the most expensive electricity you'll ever buy. And the second you buy the panels to put them on your house, it's like taking the most expensive electricity you could ever have, taking 25 years of those utility bills and paying for them all at once. And you get your power independence, but you pay a hefty price for it. you got to have a battery bank system. Battery banks have the charge life, a number of charges and discharges, uh, cycles. Many times the, the battery banks will die before you can get your return on investment in your panels. You have to put new batteries in. But you will be energy independent. And by no means will you be saving money doing this except, you might get your money back in 10 to 20 years if you're in Socialist California where they've artificially inflated the price of electricity through taxes to 20 to 25 cents a kilowatt hour. Then there's a possibility of getting your money back because these solar panels were made with 3.5 cents nuclear power from Japan. If you live in the Bahamas and you have 35 to 40 cents electricity because it's an island nation and they make their electricity off of diesel fuel, you will get your money back even quicker. Uh, this also goes for Hawaii, some of the smaller islands. Electricity is 45 or 50 cents a kilowatt hour. You will get your money back there. So again, it's the most expensive electricity you can ever get, but there's one thing more expensive than the most expensive electricity, and that is no electricity. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to ask you. Would you say that in spite of the expense and the, and the loss of efficiency, if you actually want to be energy, if you want to be off-grid, is it, does it really need to be part of what you're doing? Um, if you really want to be off-grid, you need to have a combination of solar, wind, and preferably something else. And that might be the gas fire. It might be hydroelectric if you have water flowing. Um, most alternative energy systems are made up of, well, you can only buy solar and wind and hydro off the shelf now, so that's pretty much your only choice. Okay. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, I'm just saying that you would, you, you, would you say that if someone's going to be off-grid, that they, they, ha they need to have solar be a component, at least some component of what they're doing, in spite of the expense that the, the independence is worth it for that person. Unless they're in a class six or class seven or class eight wind area where the wind is sure. blowing all the time, yeah. It's got or they have a really awesome stream in their backyard that they have what rights to. They could probably do hydro then and hydro is the ultimate. Hydro is the best. Next best is wind. Third best would be solar. If you're living in Arizona or a sunny area, obviously solar is going to be a big component of what you do. Very cool. All right, next question. Since pyrolysis, which I think I have right, which I think maybe to define that for people, the way I understand it means burning stuff without oxygen. And since pyrolysis isn't limited to vegetation, what are your thoughts on burning of household wastes? Since the resulting gases are being burned, it should be cleaner than burning a pile of trash in an open field with fewer odors. Is this a viable way to get energy back from trash? If so, what materials are best suited and which should be avoided? Okay, first, uh, just to be really 
we kind of the the word is pronounced pyrolysis, and um, it works very good. It is not the burning of anything; it is the heating of something. You take a metal tank, like a metal gas can or a scuba tank, and you put your material into it, like wood or trash or what have you, waste motor oil. Uh, doggy do anything you want and then you close it up and you have a valve and a hose coming off of it and you heat it you heat it in a hot fire or with a hot flame or in a solar furnace it will heat up the material there is no combustion it'll start driving off the hydrocarbons there are methanols there's acetones there's turpentines in wood and in wood chips it dries off these lighter liquids as gases, uh, and then it starts driving off methane, and then it starts driving off even hydrogen off of the wood when it gets hotter. And this is pyrolysis. Now, this was very successfully demonstrated running a generator in the TV series The Colony, Season 1. They ran a significant amount of their electricity off of pyrolysis, of broken up wood pallets in a 55 gallon metal jerry can that was going to a generator that they made out of a small motor and an alternator. Very cool. So it can be done, and I got the pronunciation wrong. It's okay. <laughs> I pronounce a lot of things wrong, including my own name. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a redneck, so we pronounce lots of things differently than other people. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's go on to the next question. It says, I am interested in a device that combines a rocket stove, hot water heater, and any waste heat that generates steam uh, and turns it into an alternator, uh, runs an alternator or to generate electricity. Is it possible? Is there such a device? Yes, yeah, it's called a steam engine. You can buy a three-horsepower steam engine from Mike Brown Solutions. Just go Google it. It will cost you three or $4,000 for the steam engine. That does not include the price of the boiler, nor the generator, or the alternator, nor the batteries, and it will be very inefficient. Steam engines are generally 5% efficient or less if you're lucky, especially in this combination that you're talking about. So don't do that. Use wood gas. Yeah, don't do that. Use wood gas. <laughs> Definitely. Um, the next question that came after that or what are the best ways to compress and contain the various gas fields that you produce for yourself? What containers are best and most effective? The answer to that question is use a, comp a compressor. People make this a lot harder than it has to be. The compressor has gas in and has compressed gas out. You run that compressed gas into a compressed gas container and you're done. This can be a 150 PSI shop compressor or it can be a 3,000 PSI diving compressor. It works the same. Just use a compressor to compress the gas. You don't need to have a special compressor to compress methane or wood gas or propane. Any piston compressing a gas and letting it out will work fine. Now, there are a lot of details to this question, and it has to do with how much can you store at 150 PSI how much can you store at 3,000 PSI? How much gas can you store in a propane tank? How much gas can you store in an air tank? How much can you store in a scuba tank? 
how much can you store in a commercial natural gas storage tank, whether if you're using a shop compressor or a dive compressor, or what if you're just storing the gas in a bag, and, you know, just like a large bag. And there are vehicles that were driven during the wartime in uh, Britain, and they are today in China with big bags on top of the buses full of this gas that you made. I have a 95-minute video that covers all of that. It covers hydrogen, natural gas, methane, propane, carbon monoxide, thin gas, producer gas, and wood gas, and it shows you how much you can store in a shop air tank, a propane tank, in a bladder, or in a scuba tank, or in a professional high-pressure tank, and it covers all of those for all of those fuels, and then it tells you how far you could drive on all of those in a small car like a Chevette, a medium-sized car, or a pickup truck. It's a 95-minute long video. It's called the Fuels Video, Gaseous Fuels. There'll be a link to it at solar1234.com and in the show notes. It's a really great video for educating you on how much of what you can put in where and how far you can drive or use it. Very, very cool, man. Uh, let's keep running, man, because I know we're going long, but if you're okay, with, we'll just keep rocking on here. Let's, let's just rock on. we got questions and answers. Let's go through them. All right. Is it possible to run a diesel engine on biogas, or would it damage the engine? Diesel engine can run on biogas easily. In fact, it runs on biogas many times easier than the gasoline engine does. But you have to keep 5 to 10% of diesel fuel going into the engine to keep it running properly. This is widely done across the United States and across the world with garbage trucks, which are diesel trucks. They will run them on 95% natural gas, which is methane, and 5% diesel. Many times this will be uh, natural gas or methane that comes from their landfill, or they'll get it directly from the utility. But a diesel engine will run on 90 to 95% natural gas and 5 to 10% diesel no modifications, no changes, won't hurt the engine. It works great. Very cool. Next one here. Um, I have a bi-fuel CNG gasoline compressed natural gas F-150. What is my best home option for generating biogas to use in its system? First of all, do not overlook the natural gas from your house. It's extremely low price right now. On the commodities market today, which is August 16th, 2011, uh, natural gas is going for about $4 an MMBTU. That's $4 per million BTUs. Now, what's a million BTUs? A million BTUs is about eight and a third gallons of gasoline. So to put that into perspective for you, at... Three dollars and fifty cents for a gallon of gasoline in MMBTU would cost you twenty-nine dollars. So if you wanted an MMBTU out of eight point three gallons of gasoline, that's twenty-nine to thirty bucks of gasoline to make the million BTUs. If you want to get it from natural gas out of your house, that'd be about four dollars for the commodity charge plus the utility charges, the delivery charge plus taxes, so let's say it's about $8 per MMBTU. If you drove your car on natural gas from your house, that would be like buying gasoline at $0.90 cents per gallon of gasoline equivalent. 
why do you want to make a large-scale biodigester when you can get the gas that cheap and that pure from the utility? But to answer your question, to make that amount of gas, you would use an in-ground digester made from bricks or cement as very well documented in the book we have called Biogas 3. And there's a link on solar1234.com to the book. And, of course, some of our folks are concerned with, well, what if that stuff from the gas grid is not available anymore? And then some of our folks say, well, that's great, but where I live, we don't have gas service. Right. Well, one, natural gas grid never goes down. Only in California where there's earthquakes <laughs> will it get shut off because the, the gas lines break and they cause fires. Uh, the gas in Louisiana during Katrina was never shut off. The gas during blizzards we have in Michigan is never shut off. The gas system after a tornado is never shut off. The gas system is hardly ever, ever shut off, not even once every 30 years. So it's very reliable. Natural gas system runs off itself. I worked with an expert from the natural gas company. He said if everyone died on the planet, the natural gas system would continue to operate for about six months with no human intervention or human contact. But true, you might not have natural gas. You might not want to be dependent upon it. So you could make a, a digester from with the book Biogas 3. It would be a pit in your backyard lined with bricks or cement. It would be about 12 feet in diameter and about 12 feet deep. And you would have to fill it with manure and plant material every day. And it would give you the best fertilizer and coming out the other end as well as gas. Awesome, awesome. Uh, next question from the same guy says, uh, can I use other gases in it like H2? Yes, you can use hydrogen in exactly what you mentioned, but really making hydrogen is an entire show in itself, if not two or three shows, and buying hydrogen from a welding supply store or Praxair is like paying up to $100 a gallon of gasoline equivalent. Many people think hydrogen is like a lightsaber and it's instantly powered, and it's not. You get the same mileage off of hydrogen as you do off of natural gas, as you do off of gasoline. Now, it's all BTUs per mile driven. Very cool. Um, let's kind of move on from there. I think you've covered that one good enough, even though there's a little bit more of the question. I think you already hit it. Yeah. Um, let's say I would also like to use my gas water heater furnace and fireplace. From the sounds of it, I think I when I uh, when I work to get my family off grid in the future. Biogas will work in all those. You just have to turn the pressure up a little bit more than normal because there will be some CO2 mixed in with the methane. So you just need a little bit more of the gas to flow out, and that's all there's to it. And you have to make lots of it, too, if you want to do all that. You have to make lots of it. Uh, your furnace would take up a great deal. Your fireplace would take up a great deal. The best way to start with is make biogas, as shown in Biogas 1 and 2. That's one of our books. You make it with a 33-gallon drum upended into a 55-gallon drum as it makes up makes gas. A 33-gallon drum rises out of a 55-gallon drum. There's a hose attached to it. The weight of the drum gives you the pressure. The gas flows through the hose, and then you can use that for cooking to start with. Very cool. Next one says, I have no experience with any of this, nor do I have any technical expertise, but I wanted to flesh out an idea. If solar heated hot water is so much more efficient than photovoltaic panels, could you use hot water to generate electricity in some sort of Stirling engine or other generator? What would be the limitations of such a system? Limitations is called the Carnot cycle, which is T2 minus T1 divided by T2. And since T2, your, your highest temperature is so low because it's just hot water, 
you have a very, very, very low efficiency. So you are not going to use hot water to generate electricity. It's not hot enough. It'll never be hot enough. If it was, it would be steam. And then you'd be using the steam and the steam engine to generate electricity. You're not going to use hot water. And there is not one single Stirling engine on the entire face of the planet that you can buy that will make any usable amount of power. There is not one single Stirling engine that will make 10 watts or 100 watts and certainly not 1,000 watts of power. Every Stirling engine you see in uh, online are basically worthless little toys that just spin a little wheel. They will not make any power. Do not write to me and tell me about Whisper Gen Corporation, that they have one that will work. They don't. Call them up and they'll <laughs> put you on a waiting list, and that waiting list has been there for five years. Excellent. I saw it like cut and dry to the point. Um, on the issue of wood gas, what type of fast-growing wood would work best with coppicing uh, that will produce the greatest energy output? I'm assuming things like black locust uh, with a very fast-growing dense wood would be preferable, but I've also heard that resins and conifers make the gases they produce more readily combustible. Are some types of wood better for heat, and are some types better for generators? answer to that is I have a book that covers every single plant that you could plant in any part of the world that makes wood. It's called Firewood Crops Volume 1 and 2. There'll be a link to it on solar1234.com. If you want to reforest Haiti, this book would tell you what plants to plant. Want to plant a wood crop in Texas, California, or Montana, or the East Coast? It will tell you what to plant. It is a very detailed book. Uh, to cover some more details, bamboo grows very quickly in many parts of the United States. Castor beans, I mean, uh, it makes a castor plant. It grows like a weed. It even produces an oil. Switchgrass is another thing that you heard popular. And going back to your question, uh, the conifers with the resins are going to make better light gases quicker that you can use in an engine, especially if you were doing pyrolysis. The uh, other Non-conifers are more of a hardwood. They'll make a better carbon monoxide and hydrogen gas without with less tars that will run your engine. Okay, next one. I'm trying to determine the feasibility of your system to meet my power requirements. Considering the digester that produces methane, one, can you reasonably produce enough gas to run a home gas stove and oven with normal use, or can it produce enough to run a hot water tank, or could it do both? Yes, easily. With Even with the 55-gallon barrel ones in the book Biogas 1 and 2, you can make enough to do cooking with, with your stovetop burner. Your oven will take a little bit more, but you can do it maybe with two or three barrels. Your hot water tank, again, it depends on how many females you have in your family that take 30-minute hot showers. Uh, that is going to take a lot more gas than your stove or your oven. And both together, you're going to need the digester that's in Biogas 3, which is the in-ground brick-laid one. Next one says, talk to me about wood gas using wood pellets. My house came with a pellet stove, and reluctantly we use that to heat in the winter. Every fall we have about four tons of wood pellets available. Can we use this as fuel to make wood gas? If so, does it produce more or less wood gas? Would the concentration of gas be more or less dense? You can use wood pellets in a gasifier. You can use it in the GET gasifier. You can use it in a FEMA gasifier. Wood pellets work really good in a gasifier. However, you cannot modify your wood pellet stove to be a gasifier. Your wood pellet stove is to heat your house only. 
Okay, easy one for you. Which of Steve's which of Steve which book of Steve's addresses building a wood gas fire and hooking up a generator? That uh, would be hydrogen gas generator for vehicles and engines, volume three and four, and it's at solar one two three four dot com. Okay, next one. I would love to begin setting up a solar system for my house in Collin County, but I'm reluctant to because of the upfront cost. What would be the best way to begin if I could spend $2,000 every couple of months or so buying the individual part size for the whole system? For example, buying uh, however many batteries I need for the whole house, then a converter, or buying it in sections, or example, uh, for example, everything sized to run just the air conditioner or the kitchen, or just saving up and getting everything at once. You don't run an AC system off of solar power. You, no one have I ever seen has a solar PV system that's running an air conditioner because air conditioners just take up so much electricity. It would be a huge system and very expensive. Uh, there's a reason your AC system is hooked up to central 240 volt lines. If you wanted to do it $2,000 at a time every month, you might be doing it for an entire year. Your system might cost $20,000. Your system might cost $30,000. Generally, you don't size a solar panel system to the needs of the house. You size the house to the solar panel system you're going to buy. Very cool. Okay. Uh, I have been contemplating the use of an old 8-foot diameter satellite dish to make a solar concentrator to make steam. How? What is the best way to make a passive solar tracker? It would cost you between $1,500 and $5,000 for the steam engine, and it would be very inefficient. It's very inefficient going from uh, solar concentration to steam to a steam engine, which would be about the only way you could do it. And as much as I hate solar photovoltaic, solar photovoltaic actually beats doing this financially. What about using that, just thinking of your earlier comments about taking heat, sending it to water, and using water to distribute and, 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 and radiate it? Would a system like that maybe make sense if you were dumping the heat into water and using it for heating? No, not at all. I mean, to make a dish on track the sun on two axes, I mean, that dish is capable of making thousands of, of, of degrees of solar heat. I mean, it could get to 2,000 degrees easily. All you need to do for heating water is one or two layers of glass or plastic in a black covered basin that's insulated. So you would never go to, you would, it's like hunting mice with an elephant gun. You would never go to that elaborate of a system just to heat water when water in a puddle heats up so quickly. Okay. Next one, it says, <laughs> I already know what you're going to say here, man. It appears that the ethanol conversions to cars are illegal in many states. Does Steve have any firsthand info on this? Also, would a wood gas conversion of a car run into the same issues? If you live in a state where they have these socialist, draconian, yearly inspection scams to keep mechanics employed, you would remove your wood gas system. You would remove your alcohol fuel system from the vehicle before it was which is easy enough to do, and I want to point out that the vast majority of states now do not have a vehicle safety inspection annually on your vehicle. Um, they just recently did that here in Arkansas, and it was like three years, and nobody's children fell out of their car and exploded and turned into uranium or any other dangerous thing. 
Uh, and some politician tried to get it back on the books, and, and he nearly got rode out of office on a rail. Um, Texas still has a vehicle safety inspection. Pennsylvania still has vehicle safety inspections. And I agree with Steve. It is nothing more than keeping mechanics employed and a couple bucks to the state. And, uh, frankly, if they want two extra dollars a year from every driver, I just assume they let that thing go and up the dadgone registration two bucks. Which in Pennsylvania they already have done. Oh, they, have they gotten rid of that there? No. no oh, they, they just they raised it anyway and kept doing it. That's right. They moved oh. it from, they moved it from, they moved it from twice a year to once a year and then they raised the rates on everything else and you have to renew your driver's license here every three years instead of every five years like everyone else does and they get you coming and going. Wow. Yeah. The Commonwealth of PA. My, my old stomping grounds. All right. Um, next is in, uh, in the first interview, Steve briefly mentioned HHO and running cars. I'm sure most of us have heard of this, PS Steve, if there was any validity in this or if it's just complete bunk. Complete bunk. Their hydrogen is not HHO. HHO does not exist. It's a myth. It is a dumb name that people put onto something. And then they start to expunge magical powers to it. Like if I did electrolysis of water and the hydrogen and oxygen, and I called it Stevens gas. And now it's not hydrogen and oxygen, it's Stevens gas. And now it takes on magical properties. It will purify water. It will cure cancer. It will remove radiation. This is what happens when you put dumb names on things. They begin to take on a life of their own. HHO is 100% bullcrap. I don't care what you say. I don't care how loud you're now yelling at your iPod at me. It does not work. It will never work. All the people on YouTube and all the videos you've seen have completely deluded themselves, and it's an hour-long discussion. And I actually wrote a detailed article on it. Maybe I'll put a link at solar1234.com to the article so you can read it, but... Your field economy is all in your foot, and all you're doing is making steam with an underhood electrolysis system that's starving <laughs> the engine. That's basically making you drive light. You can't accelerate as quick. You're not driving as fast. So your fuel economy is, is solely because you're not driving as fast. So if I just uh, lengthen your throttle cable a little bit, I'd do the same thing a lot easier. If you put a piece of wood underneath your uh, <laughs> pedal so you could never go more than 60 miles an hour, it would do the same thing. Awesome. Awesome. Also, two of my favorite people, uh, Adam Savage and Janie Heineman, the Mythbusters, uh, took a look at this, and they said flat out the same thing you did, that none of these systems work from the turnkey ones to the buy the plants and build it yourself. It was all complete crap. It is, completely. And I was a development engineer for Chrysler Corporation for 10 years. I'm an expert in hydrogen and all those fuels, alternatives, and conventional. Uh, I have done it all. I can tell you it is 100% don't waste your time. But it doesn't matter. There's people still brain polluted who are still yelling at their iPods right now, screaming at me. And, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> don't apologize for telling people the truth, man. That's what this show is all about. Um, the final question now. I am looking to build a wood gas fire that will run a 5,000-watt generator that will charge a bank of batteries that I can use as a source of power in an outage or to plug a small portion of my appliances into. 
any tips uh, above what's in your book. A little background to the question. I live next to a sawmill and have access to a large amount of sawdust that are a nuisance to the sawmill operator. My idea is to run this gas fire with sawdust as fuel to create wood gas so I could run the 5K generator, uh, charge a bank of batteries with inverter. That would be a backup power for essential power needs in the case of a power outage and other times as a way to cut my grid usage by wiring a separate line of 120 volt into a room or two to run small things in the house. I ordered your book, Hydrogen Generator Gases for Vehicles and Engines, Volume 3 and 4, as the beginning of my plans for such a system. Just wondering if you had any additional tips for this specific application. First of all, you got the correct book. That book will get you going. It'll get you modif- making a FEMA gasifier. It'll get you hooking it up to your generator. It will get you going. A battery bank is about the most reliable source of power you can get for an emergency because there are no moving parts to them. They're sitting there. They're waiting for you to use them. You just flip on the inverter, and instantaneously you have power. I have one at my mother's house. I have dozens of other people who have built them for emergency backup power, and they work absolutely great. If you want to... First, keep them charged off the grid all the time in case of an emergency. But then if you want to save energy and run part of your house off of the battery bank and then recharge it with the wood gas, go ahead. You can do it. That will work real good for you. It's a good place to start. In fact, you can even get um, grid tie inverters, and you can tie it into your house. The house will automatically use the higher voltage coming off of the grid tie inverter. The grid tie inverter will phase match the house electricity perfectly. And if you're making more electricity off of the wood gas generator and the battery bank than you're using and you have a net metering meter, it'll actually run the meter backwards for you. Well, absolutely awesome, Stephen. Thank you for spending uh, about an hour and a half with us today, man. Uh, I'm sure everybody out there is, is, is once again mind-swimming with ideas and concepts, and, and I think we really probably answered a lot of questions. I'm sure a lot of the people out there that didn't send in questions had very, very similar questions and have a better grounding and understanding of these concepts now. Oh, Fabulous. I'm, I'm happy to come back anytime you want on a schedule or not and answer all the energy questions from your people and give them hands-on solutions and provide them with the best stuff. Even if they don't buy anything, we'll give it to them free of charge as much as we can, and uh, we'll continue on. Maybe we do an, uh, a show on alcohol. Uh, that would be a popular subject for everyone, and it sounds like you got a great deal of background with your beer brewing on, on, on the subject. I, I like to make alcohol. I, I've never made it to, to put in my, uh, my my diesel truck or my uh, gas car, uh, but I've made quite a bit of it to put into myself, and uh, I enjoy that too. So I always enjoy talking about things that involve uh, yeast and fermenting and mash conversion processes and things like that. And, yeah, I think we'd like maybe to have you back maybe once a month or something like that. I also want people now, maybe they didn't hear the first interview or whatever or forgot, tell them where they can go to buy your books, find out more about you and what have you. Okay, the company is Knowledge Publications. Our website is ush2.com, like USH2, United States Hydrogen. That's kind of hard to say on the air, so I always tell everyone, go to solar1234.com, because you can remember that because you're driving. It's easy to remember. You can write it down, and I'll have a link to USH2, a Knowledge Publications, uh, on there. I'll have a link to every book that we talked about, 
I will put up a link on there to the first interview with Jack, uh, to Jack's website. You'll have the links to the current interview up there. And from that website, it'll take you to where the gaseous fuel video is. It'll take you to where Sunshine the Dollars is. It'll take you to where HGG3 and 4 is. It'll take you to my YouTube page where I have all my videos you can watch. I will just solar1234.com will be a resource that changes with every interview to reflect what we talked about and where you can get everything that we spoke about. And I'll put a link up there to get gasifiers and everyone else. Uh, your audience is just fantastic. I, I just want to give them as much as I possibly can, as much knowledge and information, where to get it free on the Internet, and, and if they so desire, where to get it in our books and DVDs. But there's a great deal of free information out there. I'm happy to point them in the right direction. Excellent. I think that helps people kind of formulate what they want to do. And then uh, buying your materials takes them to the next level. And, folks, I want to do remind you here uh, at the end, uh, really cool thing Stephen did. I, I, it takes me usually a lot of work to add somebody to the member support brigade as a supporting vendor. Uh, generally not because it's not a good deal for them, generally because they don't understand that it's a good deal for them too, but it generally takes a, a week of working a minimum to get someone to say, hey, yeah, I'll support your support brigade and give a discount to your members. Stephen, we did one interview, and at the end of the interview, I explained to him what the member support brigade was, and he said, well, of course I'll do that. Uh, access to your best customers for a discount. Uh, of course, and of course, you know, like things like rocket stoves and, and some of the other hard products, uh, they have thin margins. So he wasn't able to do a discount on everything, but what he did put a discount on is, I think the most valuable thing there, the information. All the books, all the DVDs on, uh, on Steve's website, 15% off to member support brigade members. So if you're MSB and you're going to buy there, use your benefit, go through the MSB and do that first. And, you know, when you're trying to find out how to do stuff like this, you're thinking about where to get your informational product from, I always say keep it in the community. When someone steps up and sponsors the MSB, they're part of the community. So put your put your money to work there first. Uh, he's done a lot for the show. He, I, I know he's given me a tremendous education. You know, you do this show long enough and you think, man, I, what else can I talk about? And, you know, I have a hundred different ideas now just from the interviews with Steve. So, folks, uh, put, your, put your money back in the people that are supporting the community and steve thank you again for being here okay yeah and when, as jack mentioned we have rocket stove i actually have a wood gas stove that gasifies wood and then burns the gas uh, and we have some nuclear safety products on the website as well but uh 15 off all the books and dvds um absolutely thrilled to be a part of the membership uh support brigade and the podcast the, and the survival podcast in itself and thank you to jack and Thank you to everyone else. Write me if you have any questions. I'll answer them for you and kick you off in the right direction. It's just a pleasure. Well, again, with that, folks, we are going to wrap up. I know we went long today, but I wanted to get as many questions as, as we could. We do have some other ones. We'll line Steve up for maybe sometime in September, probably after this uh, Self-Reliance Expo to come back on. And uh, we'll keep answering your questions. And I think that, uh, again, I'm very appreciative that uh, Steve came on the show. And I'm really appreciative of the listener that tracked him down in the first place. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Stephen Harris, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Nothing I can do